Our sponsor for this episode is Carnivore Club. Carnivore Club is a subscription to some of the highest quality meat in the world. Members of this exclusive club receive a box of cured meat delivered to their door every month. They highlight a different artisan with each delivery, which means you never get the same selection twice. They were kind enough to send us a box of meat, and I've decided that this is pretty much the only thing I ever want to receive in the mail again. Laura and I got some cheese, crispy bread, and some wine, and ascended to heaven. If you want to come home from work and slice yourself a piece of artisan spicy salami, then this is for you. You deserve more meat in your life. If you're ready to join the exclusive club for meat lovers, go to carnivoreclub.co, that's .co and not .com, and sign up to get your first box for 15% off with the promo code LISTEN. Do it. Marketers, the age of the customer has arrived and Salesforce is with you for every step of your customer's journey with your brand. Blaze trails across your entire business to create one connected customer experience. With Salesforce, be smarter and more predictive with your marketing using an intelligent platform that integrates marketing with sales, service, and commerce by engaging your customers on any device and channel in real time. Learn more at salesforce.com money. Hey, what is going on, everybody? And welcome to Listen Money Matters. When there is no enemy within, the enemies outside cannot hurt you. My name is Thomas, and I'm here, as always, with my good friend, Andrew. Andrew, how are you, and what are you drinking today, dude? Uh, awesome. I- I'm-, I'm awesome today. And are you? Yeah, yeah. That- are you sleeping? <laughs> have you been sleeping? <laughs> uh, no, I-, I have been, actually. I have. I, w- okay. I-, I was sick, and uh, I'm-, I'm better. I'm better. Um, well, from all the texts you've been sending me, it just seems like you've been... Uh, I've been up basically a lot. working nonstop on the tool. So, so, so this is like after it's <laughs> launched, but I pretty much all nightered it for like a month. Yeah. Um, but I'm good, and I'm just drinking another Icelandic beer because I literally did not have time to go out and get another beer. Is that that one that sounds like breakfast? It's a toasted porter. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. It's dude. The, their porters are amazing. It's sounds pretty good. From Einstock. What about I'm just you, dude? Drinking my bubbly water. Hmm. Yeah, nothing exciting, but hey, it keeps me hydrated. But yeah, guys, today on the show we have a guest, and uh, his name is Sam Polk. Sam, so let me let me try to like spin your life story just in a couple sentences here. You basically went from Wolf of Wall Street to the opposite of that, right? That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, because you were on Wall Street and. We were reading up on your your bio, and it said that you were offered like a three point seven five million dollar bonus one year, and it felt too small, which is like absolutely bonkers to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. And now you're doing more like social entrepreneurship stuff, and not caring about ridiculously huge bonuses. Yeah, I mean, okay. less, L- less. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I did get that vibe that you didn't go directly from making a ton of money on wall street to I don't care about money at all. Like, it seems like you've just kind of shifted into a more balanced outlook on profit versus problem solving. Well, look, there's like, there, there's like a, a cliche story about wall street, which is like this hedonistic guy who's, you know, sleeping with prostitutes and doing cocaine and then realizes he's empty and then goes and sort of tries to save the world and works with kids and all this stuff. And, it's funny, like, even when you say it, like, Wolf of Wall Street, like, 
you know, the truth of it is like on Wall Street, I, I was sober. I got sober from drugs and alcohol like three weeks into my Wall Street career. So my entire eight year career, I didn't drink. I never slept with a prostitute. It wasn't mm. a sort of crazy, you know, again, hedonistic lifestyle. Um, and then also when I, you know, have gone into the nonprofit world and now social enterprise world, it's not like you know, my issues with money sort of disappear. It's not like I sort of sail off into the sunset feeling happy all the time. It's like, it's more complicated than that. And it's funny to see sort of a lot of times the media coverage is like, just assumes that's the sort of direction that we're going. Yeah. Know? Yeah. <laughs> well, dude, let's, let's take a step back because if your bonus is $3 million, I think like that's probably the life well above the lifetime earnings of many people who are listening. How could you even step away from that? Wasn't it like the best shit ever? Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that a lot of money is good. And, you know, for me, you know, just so you know the facts, like 3.6 million was the bonus, but I had to walk. I, it, I, I basically left half of that on the table. Basically, every year you get your bonus, but you get half of it immediately. And then the other half you get paid fully a year later when it vests. Mm -hmm. And so not, not to like, you know, you can hear the tiny violin playing <laughs> only 1.8 million, you know, but that's true. That's what it was. Um, but yeah, man, like I was on this trajectory where it was like, I'll tell you literally like the, 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 the scale of my earnings was like first year was like 40,000. The next, this is all just bonus. So 40,000, 75,000, 125,000, 500,000, a million, and then 3.6 million. And so you could see if you like plotted that on wow. a graph, you know, where that was going, you know, yeah. and, and it was, it, it's crazy. It's like, you know, I talk about that like little violin, but like, it's not a sob story. Like I walked away with not enough money, but it is true that like I walked away from a lifetime of multi-million dollar paychecks mm -hmm. and, and even more, you know, why that's, that sounds ludicrous. Basically, like, I, I think the answer is sort of, I, I started to ask myself, like, what's the point, mm. you know, like, we all sort of hear these cliches, you know, like, more money, more problems, although I don't necessarily agree with that. But like, um, you know, I know the grammar is incorrect. It's more yes. money. <laughs> <laughs> he who dies with the most toys still dies, you know, mm. like, you know, I, I guess it comes down to a question of like, what you think we're all doing here, and mm. what you think point of this is um and for me the idea that the point of it was to you know compete with other sort of similarly ambitious greedy guys to see who could sort of accumulate the biggest pile of money so that we could have nice stuff like you know nice hotels and flying first class or flying in private jets and you know so what you know like i, I guess i started to realize that at the end of my life I was not going to be proud of that. Um, Are you saying like once you had all the things and the private jet and whatever, uh, like you became desensitized and it was almost empty? I mean, I, I don't, I didn't have a private jet for the record and I was still flying coach, you know, and <laughs> I, I continue to fly coach, which always bums me out. Um, but that's the point of coach. <laughs> to bum you out <laughs> yeah it's like 22 inches you know between your knee and the whatever um, hey, at least it isn't the duct tape to the wing section mm. yeah <laughs> oh, which i'll be grateful um but here's the thing is like if you really want to break down why people want money 
okay? Some of it is they want the nice toys. And that, to me, seems like legit. Like a $1,000 suit is nicer than a $200 suit. And a mm-hmm. $700 a night hotel is a lot nicer than a Motel 6. And mm-hmm. and all that stuff, like, I guess it, it's true. Um, but for me personally, and I honestly bet that for most people, that's not that big of the percentage of the reason that they want more money. Mm-hmm. The other two reasons I think are the biggest ones. One of them is freedom from worry. And I still like want that. Like I have yeah. this amount of money in the bank that I have enough, but I but it's not enough so that if I stopped working today and still lived in Los Angeles with two kids that I would never run out. And so there is <laughs> How many millions thing- do kids cost in Los Angeles? Several, basically. <laughs> well, but actually that's a good point. Like in it, it's all about and this goes to like some of the stuff we were talking about in um the book, but it's you know, in, in a certain neighborhood, in a certain area, you know, yeah. um, kids become more expensive. But but again, I'm not playing for that violin, but, but it is that freedom from worry that I think is the holy grail for a lot of people. But then the biggest thing is, and this is sort of what the book was about, is that most of us want a lot of money so that we can show the world and ourselves that we are important, that we are valuable, that somewhere in the world and in, in the society, we did something that people valued enough to make us super wealthy. And that's why I think people want to live in you know, a hundred million dollar house or a house with 20 bedrooms. It's not because the difference between that 18th and 20th bedroom means that you can have, you know, you know, your own, you know, Swedish, you know, massage room. So you're saying you chased the millions to, to get the validation, but you feel like the, the path to the millions wasn't, um, what you would hoped it to be. It was, it was empty. Well, no, not actually, I mean, yes, but it's not, that, that's the thing. And I, you know, I, I think that in some of my press interviews, I probably didn't do a good enough job sort of explaining this, but like, I don't think that Wall Street is inherently evil. Mm. I worked I, on I, it. I, I agree. I don't think that, um, I, and I loved it. Like, like the, 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 the pure sort of like intellectual challenge and like, you know, a question of sort of like how fun is your job? Like trading bonds at a bank or a hedge fund is like, as far as I'm concerned, one of the funnest things that you can do. Mm. Um, It was more that I started to realize that I was doing this, this fun thing that I liked so that I could get that validation. And Mm. I started, you know, some of my story is going through a lot of therapy and working with a spiritual counselor and dealing with a lot of the you know, pain and issues from my childhood. And it was mm-hmm. almost like I started healing that stuff in in, in such a way that I, I, I started like slowly reconnecting to my own sense of inherent value. And then it becomes this question of like, if you're like me, you know, you're trying to get all this money to basically fill this hole inside. So then what happens if you actually figure out how to fill it up from the inside? Mm. Then what do you do? And that, that's more like what it was to me, where it was like, now, now all of a sudden what I'm doing, like, let me tell you, like, you get a, like an economic report. Like, let's say you get a, a report from Morgan Stanley on Clear Channel, you know, mm-hmm. there, there have been times in my life that that was literally the most interesting thing in the world that I could read. And I was like, oh, man, I cannot wait to just dig in and really <laughs> understand this better. And then for some reason, I, I think because I didn't need that money so much, then all of a sudden I was like reading this and I'd be like who cares? Like who really cares? Like there's mm-hmm. gotta be something else to do. Yeah. Yeah. I've had a similar experience. 
not with money, but like Andrew, you know, with the YouTube channel, mm. you kind of see the growth happen for a while. It's like, hey, all these people are watching things. It's like validation. But then you kind of hit a point where you just realize, and I had this happen back in March. Um, it just kind of hit me like, I'm literally just doing this to try to hit a certain number, you know? And like, I picked this topic for that reason instead of because it was interesting or fun or I feel I needed to share it. You know, I, I think there just, has to like, be something fulfilling with it. Uh, I was mm-hmm. Laura was telling me a story um, how this woman lost her camera in a cab, and she she Googled, um, you know, like lost and found, found this website, and it's forty seven dollars, and they're going to add you to a list and they help you find it. Turns out it's a complete scam. The guy just collects forty seven dollars. He posts your name and phone number on his website. He doesn't do anything. He also owns something for lost pets, lost luggage in airports, and it looks like the guy's killing it. But you know, <laughs> oh, when you're man. when you're at like a dinner party, your friends like, "What do you do for a living?" It's like I people who lost their pets, I steal their money. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he has like some weird cooked up justification for it, but I don't know. It always seems like people do because I, I think about that sometimes too, like people who scam people how, how can they live with themselves but mm. i don't know i think the human power to justify is very strong much stronger than we think it is but look i, I want to be clear that uh like wall street is not scamming people from their money and i think the, the mm. movies are the movies uh there's actually a lot of smart people that work there. i, I work there um yeah. but sam i can resonate on how like a relationship with money changed can you kind of explain that because it sounds like you you felt felt disenfranchised with work like then what it was it was also sort of like my definition of success change so like i used to basically think like how successful someone was was basically about how much money they had and Mm. on wall street it was like that was like it distilled like nobody cares what you did to get it it was just how much do you have in the bank but then if you Mm. would like think about billionaires and you know guys who started tech companies or whatever it was all this question of like well how much has the sort of world says that said that they're valuable and that is sort of proven in money and Mm -hmm. that basically changed so it's not like i stopped wanting nice things it's not like i want i I wanted to move away from your or that i was free totally from worry about money it was just that like you know i meet people now like I meet people all the time that are like really nice people and I don't have a, you know, chip on my shoulder, but let's say I meet you and you're like a, you know, a wall street, you know, a a mortgage trader for some bank. And, you know, you probably have, I don't know, $7 million in the bank and you live in this beautiful house. And like, you know, that in itself for me is no longer basically impressive Mm. for lack of a better word. Um, They've been there, done that. Well, it's not so much been there, done that. It's that like, you know, you keep saying that people on Wall Street are not criminals and that's true, right? Like most of my friends are like, you know, okay, you went to high school and then you did good in high school. So you got into a good college. And then from that good college, you got a summer internship at Goldman Sachs and then you made it on the Goldman Sachs. And they paid you stupid amounts of money and you're like, yes. Yeah. And you, and then you wanted to get promoted from analyst to associate to vice president and you did. And so now you're coming in to work every day, trading mortgage bonds as a vice president and you're not doing anything wrong. You're not doing anything illegal. And even more so you are 
following the clear path that was laid out to you to be successful. Mm. Yeah. What, what I'm saying is that to me, that following that factory path, even though it is the highest class 1%, it is still this factory path that is in this weird way, like a great place to hide. And what I mean mm. is like, you know, nobody on Wall Street is like, oftentimes you're on Wall Street and you're basically not letting the world or other people sort of know who you are. You're sort of wearing the same clothes, following the rules, not speaking out of line so that you can keep progressing up that ladder. Mm, yeah. And I guess my definition of success is much more about have you figured out what is the unique set of talents and experiences and perspectives inside you that makes you resonate and create unique things that only you could do and you've sort of figured out where that puzzle piece that you are fits into the world. Right. And I think, I honestly think that most people on wall street haven't done that. They've, they've figured out where their puzzle piece can get paid really well, hmm. but they haven't figured out where they fit. I've always viewed career paths like that to be difficult in one way. It's, you know, it's very difficult in a certain, you know, you have to get good grades, you have to impress the recruiter, you have to work very, very hard if you're a quant or something, but easy in another way where, like you said, you there's not as much uncertainty that you really have to face head on and really define what you want to do because you are walking a well-trodden path and you're slotting yourself into a place where somebody probably was six months ago and now they're, they're above you and now you just want their position. There's so, no yeah. risk. There's no, mm -hmm. and, and that's the thing is like, you know, it is, a, it is definitely a big achievement to get, you know, to get into Harvard and then to get into Goldman Sachs. So it's a big achievement, but you didn't risk anything, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like if you didn't get that, you were going to collapse. It was just, you went the highest that you could possibly get. Yeah. For me, like that, that sort of is the point of life in some sense, which is like, you know, if, if you take away that path that's there, then it's like you're faced with this terrifying decision, which is that, hey, you know what? You have this brief gift of life, this brief window of which to do something. You have an entire world of issues, causes, things that need to be fixed, problems that need to be solved, and you've got to make a choice. And what choice are you going to make? And what does that say about who you are, but also what you believe is important? And yeah. I think that following that path is a way that people avoid making that choice. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of people would be curious to know about how you thought about the money you were making. Because I know personally, even now, when I think of making $3.6 million in a year, you know, plus whatever your salary was, so, so significantly more than that probably, I don't know what I would do with it. And uh, just yesterday, actually, my girlfriend and I were in the car and we were talking about CEOs who have high compensation, you know, having a little discussion about whether or not that's ethical. Uh, I'm kind of balanced on that point. But she was like, why would you have that much money? You don't need it. So I guess I'm curious when you actually get to a spot where you are in reality making that much money, what do you do with it and how do you view it? Does it does it feel like an endless swimming pool of money that you own or does it kind of normalize and does it feel just as limiting as maybe 80K was five years ago? Well, it, it, it's sort of both. Like, you know, you realize pretty fast that there's nothing that you can't buy with this year's bonus except mm -hmm. for 
a house, basically. Like, if you want to go out and buy a car, even a Lamborghini, you can do it. You know, like you're not. And and the nice thing about Wall Street is that you have you're on this sort of like unlimited path. So it feels like and it, it could have been that that would continue forever and actually just grow. Mm-hmm. So then it becomes less about what you want to buy. But then your question of like, you know, how you feel about whether it's enough is like the funny thing about Wall Street is that most people have a sort of theoretical number in their mind. And it might surprise you sort of what it is like, you know, you read about the sort of billionaires on on Wall Street and those guys have made it. They've passed it like there. I'm sure there's billionaires that like, you know, are at one billion and really want to get to five billion. But that's just a pure type of craziness. But most people on Wall Street basically have you know, let's say you've been there for 10 years, you basically have somewhere between two and $5 million in savings. But that's mm. not your number. Your number is probably 10 million or 15 million. And so you're building towards that number because to, to you that number means sort of freedom. And, okay. and, and once you get that, then you can walk away. And so even though you sort of are enjoying the lifestyle that you have, you still feel like, you don't have enough because you're not at that place which would allow you to walk away. Yeah. So and and for the record, I don't agree with those numbers. Like mm-hmm. I don't think 15 million I don't think that it's actually a number that allows you to walk away. Yeah. Well, it's one thing I've realized not with money but with uh, like subscribers online, you feel like you know, you're down at 200 subscribers on a blog or a YouTube channel and you think if I could just hit 50,000, man, that's like the golden parachute. I can just do whatever and I'll be good forever. And you hit that, and the moment you hit it, you're like, no, it's not enough. Uh, there's like, there's a ton of people here. Now I got to get a million. And I guess the one thing I've realized is that it, it never gets easier. It, it shouldn't ever get easier because if you're doing it right, you should always be challenging yourself to do better than you did before, no matter what point you're at. But the other thing is that the bar kept moving every time I'd hit it. And I'm wondering, was that the same for you? Like, was did you have an original number and that just kept getting pushed forward and forward? I mean, it, it wasn't like I had a number in the beginning. Like, it was, I remember when I got my first $40,000 bonus and I was like, we grew up like, you know, I don't want to say poor, but like lower middle class struggling, like junky mm-hmm. cars, you know, paycheck to paycheck, electricity getting turned off. And I had lived paycheck to paycheck my entire life. And so getting that 40,000, so I was like, oh, now I have like a money in the bank so I don't have to worry about what's in my ATM balance before I take out money. That was all I cared about at the time. Mm-hmm. Then later, it became much more about like, I remember at some point my number was like 100 million. And it was really about, for me, that was less about the money that I needed, but more like where it was important for me to sit in the hierarchy of the world. I okay. figured that guys that made 100 million were really important guys who had done something really important. <laughs> I wanted to be that. Yeah. Um, and now, yeah, not, and going back to what like you're saying, like this is what I've sort of come to believe about this is that, is that we all have inside us basically like ambitions, which are the things that we want for ourselves, the money, the subscribers. Um, but we also have like our aspirations and the things that we want to do and contribute to the world. And when you're, I guess what I, I don't think that Wall Street is inherently bad. What I do think is that the culture is completely identified with the I, trying to fill those ambitions without even thinking about those aspirations. Mm. And my feeling about this is that when you are completely focused on yourself, then it never is enough because the truth of it is, is like we become happier or proud or more fulfilled 
the more we are exercising those aspirations. And both of these things are important. Like, you know, if you're going to start a family, it's important that you have savings. It's important that you can feel like, you know, your family is taken care of and that you live in a nice house and have a nice car, whatever it is. But when you are exercising your aspirations, like doing something good for the world that you believe in, then you have this almost, it's almost like the opposite feeling. It's like the more you do of that, the better you feel and and you already feel like you're enough because what's good for what you're doing, it's good because it's impacting everybody else. And that's sort of where the fulfillment comes from. As a business owner, you know you need access to capital to grow, but getting that capital can be a difficult task. That's where Cabbage comes in. Cabbage provides simple, flexible access to a line of credit for up to $100,000. Access your line of credit from a phone or computer. You'll get a decision in minutes and you can start using your funds immediately. There are no fees to set up your credit line and you only pay for what you take. Cabbage has helped 80,000 businesses with over $2 billion in funding. Go to cabbage.com slash business today and get a $50 gift card when you qualify. That is cabbage with a K dot com slash business. It's time you take your small business phone system to the cloud and save thousands. MagicJack for Business has unbeatable reliability at an incredible price. They use state-of-the-art technology to provide 99.99% uptime and exceptional call clarity. There's no nickel and diming. Pricing starts at $14.99 per line. Port your existing number or get a new one. MagicJack for Business is both easy to set up and scalable. Professional features include an auto attendant, music on hold, conference bridge, virtual fax, and more. Get two months free service when you sign up at magicjackforbusiness.com slash listen. So the title of your book, For the Love of Money, you're doing it because you wanted money, right? I mean, you're still working. You're still trying to earn money. Like, how did you flip from one side to the other? Yeah. So, so my path is sort of like, first of all, I want to say like, I don't not, not only do I not like judge people who don't sort of make this thing, like it literally, it almost sounds embarrassing to say, but like walking away from wall street was literally the hardest thing I ever did because it was so deep in me that that was important. And that it was almost this ingrained belief system. And it's like like, you leave, could you ever come back? Will you still have the skills like you did before? You know what, I, I, there was definitely like years that I'd be like, you know, okay, well, I've been gone for two years, but if I really need to get back, I, I still can, you know, and, mm-hmm. da, da, da. and like now it's sort of like I've definitely written a few articles <laughs> anti-Wall Street that it would be tough, you know, <laughs> but still it's a safety net. No, I'm, it's not like, so first of all, it was really hard for me to walk away. But then for me, it's almost like I went in the complete opposite direction. And I basically sort of followed that cliche Wall Street story where it was like, I was almost like embarrassed about all the money I'd made and that I'd spent my life so much. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to be 100% about volunteer work and charity and giving to people. And so I, I basically, you know, did volunteer work for several years and then ended up starting a nonprofit and because working you're at a capitalist. That- well, but nonprofit for no money and actually oh. no, no, so you no don't take pay. any salary from the work that you do. 
So I'll, I'll get there. But but for the nonprofit, which is still running, it's called Grocery Ships um, that I'm still deeply involved with. But I've never basically taken a salary. So all of that that I created was for no money, no salary. Um, and, and, and it was both really fulfilling, but also at you know, a, a few years into it, I sort of realized that it was like I had just gone imbalanced the other direction and that yeah. there are these parts of me that like I still do, you know, I still do have that worry about money and I still want to make a little bit more. But I also have that sort of like ambitious competitive part of myself that, you know, allowed me to do pretty well on Wall Street and that wasn't being exercised. And so now I've started this business that is so cool in a lot of ways because it's all about solving a, a problem. Basically, we're selling healthy food through these small storefronts that we own and control that bases the price of the food on the uh, income of the communities that we're in. So when we go into low-income food deserts, is what they're called, where there's no healthy food for sale, we sell these incredible meals ba- made by some of the best chefs in the country for $4, which is better than people can get at McDonald's. And then we sell the same meals in higher-priced areas, more affluent areas, for $8. And what, what I find really cool about this is like now I'm taking a salary. We raised a ton of investment capital. Um, you know, if this business does really well, then I'll make a lot more money. And the bigger, the, the, the better it does, literally the more people are helped and the more this problem is being solved. And, you know, look, my, my life is a, is a history of thinking I found the answer and then realizing that it's not the answer. But right now I think this is the answer. <laughs> yeah. I mean? Dude. So, so this is every table, right? Yeah. Okay. I'm curious, $4, you know, healthy meals made by chefs. Are, are you making any profit from those? I'll break it down and you can see on our website, like we, we literally break down the, the entire profit stru- uh, cost structure of it. So it's basically like, you know, ingredients plus packaging is like a dollar and change. Then you have basically labor of sort of cooking the meals is like 75 cents and change. And then you have the sort of storefront and all, th- all things together per meal, if we hit a certain volume targets per each store that we're trying to get to, works out to about $3.50 per meal. So we are making a little profit selling it at $4, but of course not enough of a profit to have a growing scalable business, just sort of enough profit to get by. The, the cool thing about this, and this business was started with me and my co-founder, who's a former private equity guy, a former actually investment banking guy at Credit Suisse, um, who's so crazy sick smart when it comes to finance, um, the, the cool thing is that we developed this model with this incredible low cost structure. When I say low cost structure, it's like, you know, we have a central kitchen that's producing all this food and then it's selling them through a network of small footprint stores. So, you know, your standard restaurant is like 2,500 square feet, ours are 600 square feet. Your standard restaurant has a built out kitchen which costs 500,000 or a million bucks to, to create. Ours just have refrigerated display cases. It's one central kitchen supporting it. Mm. And so because we don't have people serving the food on premises, we have two people in the store instead of 10 people. So that cost structure allows us to then sell food for four bucks for this tiny profit. But because we've kept that discipline in the cost structure, when we sell food for eight bucks, then all of a sudden we make great profit, which allows us to scale the business. And and, and, and it's great in a lot of ways because because we've kept that cost structure so low, that means that the people who are spending eight bucks, you know, are getting a better deal than they usually get. You know, if you go to yeah. Sweet Bean or whatever, you're, you're used to paying $12, 14 bucks for a salad. Here mm-hmm. you're paying eight bucks for it. It's 
better quality in my opinion. Do you have a and spot in New York? Not yet, not yet. Because <laughs> you said sweet greens. I eat sweet greens, and they're a damn expensive salad. <laughs> they're damn expensive. You know, although I do want to give credit to those guys. Like, they really, you know, they, I think, in my mind at least, they were the first one to prove that, like, a legit healthy business model could go nuts. And that they sort of, like, treated it like a venture capital startup and basically, like, exploded out of the gates. The like, lines outside are insane every day. Insane. And it's really good. I don't know if you, like, I mean, I I, I love Sweet Green. I, you know, I I'm definitely almost work. a gold status, dude. Like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what you guys are talking about. It's, it's, it's what happens when you eat a lot of expensive salads. Um, yeah. <laughs> But, uh, dude, that's awesome. So your stores, uh, how do you get the food? Do you have to sign up online? It has to be pre-kind of ordered and then... No, 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 you just come in. It's like, th th that's the thing that we sort of realized is like, I bet you that Sweet Green, which is actually pretty fast, that you get annoyed at the lines that you have to wait in. I, I right? pre-order. I can't. Like, it's an, like, the line is at least an hour long, always. Yeah. I'm in trying so that, so. So this is part of this shift that's going on in the world, right? Which is like... You know, 10 years ago, there was no fast casual before Chipotle. It was always big full service waiter restaurant. But the, the sort of history of this is that like in the 60s, women went into the workforce and we stopped teaching home ec in schools, both of which are great developments in my opinion. But this long sort of history of like, you know, passing down from family to family how to cook and how to prepare food suddenly disappeared. So now what you're seeing is everybody in our generation doesn't know how to cook. They think cooking is like warming up two different things from Trader Joe's. And 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 so now we're eating all our food out. So now we, we are finding places where we can get that food fast, but people still sort of value this like, oh, I want it to be fresh. I want it to be made for me. Mm. But I think we're seeing this wave that was like full service, to fast casual and now people are just like you that are like look if it's made 30 minutes before i don't care i trust that it's good i just need it fast and quick and cheap and so now we're sort of opening these stores which are a lot more like pret in new york which is like you walk in you know that the food has been made hours before so mm -hmm. it's not like it's not like the grocery store where it's like been on the shelves for three days and you're checking the expiration mark to because do you really want to eat those shrimp you know yeah. it's like yeah. definitely fresh but you don't have to wait in those lines how long have you guys been open for? About a month and a half. Oh, okay, so you wait, were like really two so, stores. Wait, you opened the same like rough time that you launched your book, dude. Check this out. That I, sounds I like a you sounds like you're a psychopath, dude. That's crazy. <laughs> two launches. I launched my book, launched this store, had a baby, and moved, and published an article in the New York Times, all in the same. <laughs> So, so you're obviously <laughs> channeling your crazy competitiveness just in more positive ways. Well, it, it may be true that I've, I've tacked back too far the other way. <laughs> it's like I'm constantly like figuring out where the straight path towards balance is. Yeah, I was asking Andrew if he was sleeping, but man, I have to ask you if you're sleeping. You know, the funny thing is that I, I do sleep like how I figured out how to do all this work and I'm it's now it's not working because now I have two young kids at home, but... I basically go to sleep at 8.30 and wake up at, you know, 4.30 or 5. And mm. so by the time it gets to be 8 o'clock, I've already done like a half day's work basically. And that, and then, you know, my, my social life suffers and I don't go out at night and people invite me to dinner at like 7.30 and I'm like, I can't do it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's the tough thing, man. Yeah, I love getting up early like that, but I also hate going to bed so early. Yeah. My, my sleep type is, is don't. 
Yeah, totally. So, I drink way too much coffee too. Do you plan on taking a salary? I mean, I'm sure you plan on taking a salary. So, for every table, I still am the executive director of grocery ships, where I don't take a salary. At Mm -hmm. every table, I'm the CEO and co-founder, and I do take a salary. Mm. So, is that going to be your main source of income? Yeah, I mean, yes, for me, for sure. I mean, my wife works too, so we'll have a two-income family. But yeah. So, is there any? Like, were you able to live off of what you'd say from Wall Street? For sure. For the like, whole time? Okay. Yeah. And I still basically have that much money, like, from when I left. So that's that's where the little violins come out. It's like, it is 100% true that I made in that year. If I hadn't walked away from the other half of that, I would have, I think I figured it out one day where it was like $1,500 an hour, basically. Oh, my um, God. Or, you know, or like uh, more than my mom had made her entire career as a nurse practitioner. So it's enough, it was, it's enough money to do whatever I want. And it's, it is, you know, this craziness, I think that I both live and feel every day and both recognize it as crazy, but also identify with of having, you know, a couple million dollars in the bank and feeling like it's not enough and I'm going to run out of money. And yeah, I do, I do think in a sense that is sort of one of the big problems with our world is like, you know, raise your hand if you think you have enough money and like Warren Buffett and Bill Gates raise their hand and nobody else does. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I know you're going to be taking the salary from every table. Um, how do you have your money from Wall Street set up to, to basically at least stay static, if not keep growing? I mean, I basically had it in like three... Until like a year ago, it was basically like in three big buckets. I had a about a third of my money in Lehman Brothers bonds that I bought post-bankruptcy. That was really good. I had about a third of my money in gold, which was like good and then terrible. And then I had like a third of money in, in cash. And these days, I'm sort of, you know, working on it with my wife and figuring out investing for the long term. It's like, it, you know, it, it's a lot more sort of like index funds, a lot in cash, a lot in gold, and a lot of sort of like general stock market stuff. And then I, mm-hmm. you know, I play around with options now and again, and have like specific bets here and there. Um, yeah. And then now we just bought a house, so that's now most of our capital. Okay. Cool. Most of our capital. So it's like a how big is this house? It's a five bedroom house in Brentwood. It was, you know, it's a house. So it was like a hundred thousand. <laughs> Maybe like 150. Yeah. <laughs> That's about how much it would cost where I live. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the trade off is I have never heard what spring green is before. So sweet green. <laughs> or sweet green. Sorry. Your ignorance green is, is showing. <laughs> you live in the middle of Iowa, dude. <laughs> but yeah, I'm getting near the point where I'm about to feel some of the same expense that you feel, Andrew. Dude, uh, I- I'm curious. A uh, very interesting story, and I could totally get how um, you wanted to switch more for your own satisfaction. Um, why write the book? Right, like yeah, you're you're clearly busy with your business. Well, so businesses. the the bulk of the book was written in the sort of three years post when I left, and you know, to be honest, it was like mostly like me processing stuff. But the thing, like. You know, one of the tough things about the book that I wrote is that like people hear Wall Street and they just expect this story of like, and then I made it on Wall Street and here's what Wall Street was like and blah, blah, blah. But actually the book is a lot deeper than that. And what I mean is, you know, as I mentioned, like when I was, tw- by the time I was 22, I'd been, you know, kicked out of college, arrested several times, fired from a job for fist fighting, and then 
you know, dumped by this girl I was in love with, basically because I was a total catastrophe with drugs and alcohol, but but in general, like self-sabotaging behaviors. And that's, you know, and so when this girl dumped me, I, I sort of reached out to a counselor and um, basically worked with her, got sober from drugs and alcohol, and then worked with her every week for basically 12 years. And that entire process was like, you know, coming to be aware of like how things in my childhood, especially like traumas, you know, I had a, a dad who was, you know, a very angry, rageful, narcissistic guy. I had a mom that was sort of like, you know, I don't want to, she was a very messy sort of out there, also rageful person. And they had a very sort of toxic relationship. And, you know, I grew up with, you know, a lot of pain, basically, like a lot of emotional pain. And so, the 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 counsel years of counseling was about healing that and about working through that and so that's what the book is about the book is really about like how you know what happens during our childhood impacts who we become as adults and what we believe about the world and believe about ourselves and so you know this book is is really about like you know i wanted to write it for this you know 18 year old kid who is like doesn't know which way is up and is in so much pain and insecurity and fear that he doesn't know what to do. And so I wanted to write a book about, you know, this is how I did it. And this is what it looked like for me and all its messiness and ugliness, but that I came out the other side, not perfect, but you know, those wounds have become scars basically. Mm. So it's more for the person who's already, who's just starting to go into this or potentially it, it, going into it. It was for all of us that like, you know, I do think that what happens in our childhood is so, I don't want to say like determinative because I think you always have power to change it, but it shapes you in ways that you can barely even understand how powerful that is. And, you know, the nature of childhood is that we're raised in a certain family that is only our family. So we sort of understand that as normal and just the way things are. And so- This book is really about anybody who, you know, wants to, is sort of starting to grapple with that or might want to understand what is behind, you know, their drug addiction, that deep desire for money and success, um, eating disorders, whatever it is that, you know, are sort of the symptoms of pain that you haven't sort of begun dealing with yet. You know, Mm. I find it interesting that, uh, I mean, not for anything, but you kind of sound like a mess before you went onto Wall Street. Dude, absolute total disaster. <laughs> and uh, then, uh, you know, lo and behold, you um, acquire this highly coveted job that I think most people would imagine is is an impossible thing for like the perfect straight arrow. You know, like the one who followed all the right rules. Um, if you were to go in reverse, right? And, um, you know, someone wants to be a bond trader and maybe they want to like live the life that you live, learn, you know, that how how do you go about it? Like being, uh, having drug issues and and fist fighting to making millions. Did you trick everybody? I did lie about it for sure. Um, so you know, to your first point, like this is definitely an example of white privilege and what that looks like. Like, you know, getting kicked out of Columbia for burglarizing a guy, a fellow sort of drug dealer, you know, I didn't get arrested. I got basically suspended from school and then allowed to come back, you know, a year later, you know, and that's like, 
that's an example of you know what it really means to have you know the privilege that we do which is just that like you know your mistakes don't cost you your life and that's not the same for everybody um second thing i want to say like about your question is like so i always had these big warring things inside me like i was i was talented and smart and um but i was also this sort of disaster and so and 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 the thing that for me like if i was going to give anybody advice on how to do it and i am not the biggest fan of sort of unsolicited advice basically but is that you know because it's so competitive for those straight arrows like you've got to do something different and be totally and so for me what that looked like was funnily enough like getting kicked out of school you know i then went to san francisco and was the head of development for this or business development for this like hot you know dot com company and it was something that nobody else had on their resume and i could sort of spin it like it was whatever and then you know one of the things that i've always been good at is like finding a way to get to people you know and so it was literally like you know i got introduced to this you know managing director named michael meyer at bank of america and got his phone number and literally called him every day for a week or for three weeks i'm sorry until he finally picked me up and it it really is stuff like that that's like wow. out of the box tenacity that you know the truth is like you have no idea how powerful you are if only you're just tenacious about whatever it is that you're going for. Just literally mm -hmm. don't give up because everyone yeah. else does. So you'll be the last yeah. one. And, 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 and I say that with the caveat of like, look, if I was a you know African-American kid from the Bronx, then I wouldn't have been able to make those phone calls because I would have been in jail. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like it's not mm -hmm. all about how awesome I am. It's, right. it's a combination of my like tenacity and skills and whatever talents and the privilege that you know, comes with being this skin color, this sex, but also being born into, even though we were a lower middle-class family, it was a middle-class family where people had gone to college and books were read and all those things add up, you know? Yeah. You know, I've always been curious how that works when you call or email someone like a million times. How did that work? Like, did he, did he pick up? He's like, Sam, never call me again. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> And then, and then you're like, hire me? And he's like, yeah, okay, fine. Like, how did you know, that work? It, it, you know, it, it, this, so this guy, Michael Meyer, is like, you know, if you read my book, you'll read, like, I had a lot of father issues, and it just so happened that the universe put into my path, like, basically the greatest father figure I could have ever wished for. And a lot of the reason that I am able to do what I'm doing now and speak the way I do and it's why I get so bummed out when people think I'm being so critical of Wall Street, which I am sometimes, but also like, you know, that caricature that people have of Wall Street being this like, evil criminals, like does a deep disservice to the quality of people that I have known on that, especially this guy. And he, you know, I think he recognized something of himself in me. And, you know, you call a trading desk. So it's, you know, it's, you know, somebody picks up and then it's, the next guy picks up and it's just like there's a hundred phone calls a day. So I'm sure he got a hundred of scribbled notes. I was like, Sam Paul called for you. And finally he just like picked up one day and he's like, <laughs> you know, what's up? What's up? And, you know, uh, he was able to be nice about it. Hmm. So I, I'm sorry, guys, I got to stop. I just realized the time and I've got to run. I, I had to do it in the middle of this. Um, but I okay. got to go. Cool, cool. Cool. Thanks for coming on the show, man. All right, guys. All right. Th thanks a ton. See you later. Thank you. 
All right, guys. Well, I guess that usually doesn't happen, but hopefully you enjoyed this interview. And hey, if you want to ask us questions either about working on Wall Street, which Andrew, you've done Mm -hmm. as well. So you've got some insights about that or anything else personal finance related. You can email us over at listenmoneymatters at gmail.com. You can also find our money toolbox over at listenmoneymatters.com slash toolbox where you can find our favorite apps, tools, cool stuff like that. So thanks so much for listening and we will see you in next week's episode. Later, man. Later, dude. Please tell your friends about this show. Thanks again to Magic Jack for Business for sponsoring us today. Take your small business phone system to the cloud and save thousands. Get two months free service when you sign up. MagicJackForBusiness.com slash listen. Be one of the first 100 people and get a free phone.